So we're looking then at the Gospel of John these Sunday evenings and the the series title, if you're interested, which I've given it is just knowing God. Very simple. But let's not overlook that and let's not fail to appreciate the enormity of John's purpose, which is to bring us, as the Holy Spirit works, to know God through this most unique and special person, Jesus Christ. These are verses which are rightly read every Christmas, and maybe you've heard dozens or more of sermons on them. It's not so much I want to find something new, because that would probably be heresy, but I want to bring out what I have marveled at again this week and show it to you in these first nine verses. But I think it'd be useful first off, maybe this is a refresher, or maybe this is brand new. Either way, I want to excite you about the gospel as we just think about this whole book, these 20 chapters, 21 chapters, and how they are fitted together, because they are fitted together with with intricate skill and beauty. John is really seeking to serve us as he presents the Lord Jesus Christ to us. So we've got a few headings up there. I didn't want to overload this outline, but it's certainly worth spending a few minutes together journeying through it. Chapter 1 up to verse 18 is the prologue. It's the initial fanfare. And you'll see, if you're not already seen and remember, that everything which happens subsequently in John's Gospel have been packed into, they're like the opening bars of music where those particular notes or selected chords which we hear for the first time here are going to be developed and explored and we'll enjoy and appreciate them as they come out later on. So the prologue um, introduces and even summarizes the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who is, as John says, the word become flesh. And then John's Gospel is essentially a book of two halves, from 119 up to the end of chapter 12, This main section has often been called the book of signs. I think I'd like to call it the book of signs and words. Now, there's plenty of words we hear from the Lord Jesus from chapter 13 on, but but there are lengthy sections of his reported speech as John is eavesdropping and accurately remembering all that his Lord said and recording them to us so that we, two millennia later, can hear the words of Christ. So the word who is Jesus is revealing himself to the world and to those who would follow him. And we see how people accept or reject him. So up to the end of the episode where Jesus in chapter 2 changes water into wine, Jesus is revealing himself over what's a seven-day period. Now, chapter 2 to the end of chapter 5, Jesus is presented, so the end of chapter 4, so one to the end, two to the end of four, Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. He replaces the religious cleansing ceremonies. He is a true temple. He alone brings new spiritual birth. He makes the children of God. He makes true worship possible, as he tells the Samaritan woman in chapter four. And he gives life in the face of death. So those great important priorities that Moses and the other Old Testament writers said God was doing amongst his people, Jesus steps into history and says, I do them, I am them, I fulfill them. And then we see in this section, chapter 5 to the end of chapter 10, Jesus replaces the Old Testament feasts, be that, and I won't deluge detail with you, be that Sabbath, Passover, 
or tabernacles. Jesus is constantly presented as the one who who fulfills and replaces these feasts. So that we're not still now perhaps a Gentile community grabbing at bits of the Old Testament system. We know the one who fulfills that system and where the Old Testament people are called to rest or rejoice or to dedicate themselves, we look to Christ and find our rest and our joy, and he brings us to be dedicated to God. Now, the final part of that first section, the book of Signs and Words, is where Jesus gives life. Chapter 11 is all about Lazarus and Christ being the resurrection and the life, but he prepares to lay down his life and to die himself, as we were thinking this morning in that those words in chapter 12, the seed must die, must fall to the ground, and through its death bring life. Chapter 13 finds us beginning the second section, the book of suffering and glory. The book of suffering and glory, which goes up to the end of chapter 20. We are with Christ and the disciples from beginning of chapter 13 in the Last Supper. And we're watching Jesus washing feet and we're listening to him, knowing that he'll be betrayed by Judas and then preparing in what's called the last discourse, his disciples for his departure. We hear him speaking to his father as he prays in chapter 17. And then we see his suffering and death telescoping towards the arrest in Gethsemane through to his trial and his execution, his death, and his burial. That's chapter 18 through to the end of chapter 19. Chapter 20 is, of course, resurrection and the appearances of the Lord Jesus to his disciples and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 21 serves really as an epilogue. So prologue, part one, part two, and epilogue. Resurrection appearances in Galilee. Jesus shows his power, his love, and he calls for discipleship. Well, I hope those were minutes of our time well spent. I didn't want to give you too much detail, but I wanted you to marvel at how carefully and helpfully John has put his gospel together. These aren't just an assorted jumble of sayings and miracles. John is leading us expertly to listen to Jesus, to observe him, to to build the composite picture of all that Christ is and give us all the necessary data and encouragement to entrust our very lives to him. Well, where do we see and who do we see Jesus as John begins this evening? I want to take a phrase which sounds like a strange one and give it as our title for verses 1 to 9. True God from true God. I referred to this phrase last week as we were learning about the incarnation. I'll come back to it in a few minutes. But what do we see? In 1 verses 1 to 9, we see, says John, the true God, who is Jesus, who has come from the true God. Verses 1 to 3, and we'll take out these verses in two halves, but verses 1 to 3, Jesus Christ is the true God. He is truly the eternal God. When John says, in the beginning was the word, he's obviously wanting us to realize that he's quoting somebody else. He's going back to another beginning, Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was God, who was the creator. John is saying the same. In the beginning was the word who was with God and was God. And verse 3, that word 
who is God and was with God, is the creator. John uses the word logos, from which we get logic and logical and ology. It's about thinking and reasoning and speaking. John is boldly taking that word from the Greek world with its obsession, preoccupation with thought and logic and reason. But John is well aware that that word logos has wormed its way into his Jewish community. And John is finding that as the best way to express the one who was there at the beginning, which is not impersonal reason or ordering principle, but who is very much personal. He is the personal God. Has has John particularly used the word logos, meaning word? Because it's through the word, through the Son of God, that God is expressing himself and communicating himself to the world. But you see, right at the beginning, John's insisting the universe is personal. There's order, there's reason, there is a personal God who's speaking to his world. Now, I was reading this um, passage last week with a friend, and, and we were wrestling with the very fact that John dares to speak of the word being with God, and was God. And, and if we came to this passage just fresh, we'd not read it before, we'd say, that's confused, that's contradictory. But I guess as Christians who, who are familiar with this passage, we say, no, no, there is depth. And there is John wrestling with the mystery, but the truth of who the word is. The word is, John says, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God, but he stands in eternity alongside God, who is Father. And that doesn't mean that God is split, that God is a composite of parts. And nor is John saying that what he's writing here stands at odds in conflict with the monotheism he's always, he always believed and was brought up with. But rather, this is just the first glimpse into what the theologians call the eternal generation of the Son touched on this last Sunday evening, I'll say the expression again, and I'll give you a theologian's definition. How do we understand the relation of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to the first person, the Father? Clearly the Son is not created, because then he's not divine. He's not the second person of the Trinity. He's the first, highest order created being. And that's nowhere what the Bible teaches. He is eternal God. So how do they relate to one another? Well, here's a modern-day theologian called Matthew Barrett. He says, The Son's origin is the Father. He is begotten, or different word, he's generated from the Father's essence from all eternity. So he's generated or begotten, not created. And this relationship of being begotten is an eternal one. So he's begotten from the Father's essence, from his divine nature, from all eternity. My hand naturally is trying to illustrate it goes back, like, in eternity past. But there's no eternity past. And there's no points in eternity. Eternity is God's state. So there was never a time when the Son was created, never a time before the Son. Father and Son stand in relation to one another as the eternal begetter and the eternally begotten. So we say, as we learnt last week with the Creed of Nicaea, 325 AD, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
eternally begotten of the Father. And then the creed wants to drive that home for our worship and amazement. We say he's God from God. He's light from light. He's true God from true God. He's begotten, not made, and of one being with the Father. And through him all things were made. And the believing church says, glory, glory. But I want to take you very briefly to John 17 to hear Jesus Christ's conviction about this. Will you come to John 17, please? John 17, verse 5. Jesus speaking in perfect intimacy to his Father hours before his arrest. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory of the love and the personal intimacy, mutual understanding and delight of the eternal begetter and the eternally begotten. And verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That eternal relationship of love, the eternal begetter and the eternally begotten. And with the Holy Trinity, with the the Holy Spirit, they exist in eternal trinity of relationships. One God in three persons. Through him, through Christ, through the eternal word, all things were made. And that is such a such an incredible statement that John repeats it, just flips it, puts it in the negative. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So if Jesus is the eternal word with God and God himself, the creator of everything and everyone, well, that settles who we worship, doesn't it? When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he hadn't just hit his thumbnail with a hammer. He was worshipping divinity. And John says, and would you worship with him? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. That settles who we trust. John fourteen six. Jesus is the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, the life, as he gives life through the power of the Spirit. And this settles the one we listen to. If God is speaking to the world and the church through his word, his Son, we listen to every word the Lord Jesus speaks to us. John doesn't write these things because he can fully understand them, nor will we. But what we understand, we grasp hold of, and we worship, and we trust, and we listen. So, verses 1 to 3. Jesus Christ is the true God. May that never feel familiar, but always startling and surprising and glorious. And he's the true God, secondly, verses 4 to 9. Who brings light and life. Light and life, I haven't done a word count, they're two of the most frequent words that John uses. They come up all the time. They they litter his 21 chapters. So in him, verse 4, was life. And that life, the light of men. So the word is the life giver and the light bringer. The one who brings unquenchable light. I'm going to say unquenchable light because John has a deliberate play on words which you may well be familiar with. The light shines in the darkness. Just as at creation, God spoke light into the darkness. John is looking out in a world darkened by sin. 
and deliberate unbelief. And says, but Christ the word, who is God's light, shines in the darkness. And the light is unquenchable for this reason, because the darkness has not understood it. The word that John uses, that's where that, there's, there's a play, there's, there's layers to it. And you've probably heard this before. That word understood means grabbed. And you can grab something very positively and very negatively. You can grasp and understand something. You can grab it and try to hurt it or throw it out of your life. And John is saying through his experience, wherever Christ is preached, people hear a simple explanation and they don't get it. But very often it's obvious they won't get it. They do not want it. We're talking about CU Mission tonight. When I was a student, we had a very distinguished um, member of the, the theology faculty. And he'd been in the university since the 1950s, and he's still still alive. And every year when the mission took place, it's an old-fashioned hardcore mission, five nights of five long talks, plus testimony as the light relief. Very, very serious. Every time there was a mission, this man would come to every single night, every single mission. And would tell people, if asked, I don't believe a word of it, but I'm fascinated by it. He was a clergyman ordained in the Church of England. And he would say he didn't believe a word of it. And you kind of think, was, was, was it never preached clearly enough? Was it because the clarity of the message seems so primitive, stark, unpleasant? The greatest message ever preached. No human mind could think it up. The second person of, of the God who's triune takes human form, comes, lives, dies on a cross, says he is taking upon himself the wrongdoing of the world and the punishment of God in an act of incredible love and said that the very life he came to lay down he has authority to pick up again and did so, raised on the third day. That's a message. That is a message of light. Light the darkness needs. But John says light the darkness does not always want to accept. Because it's too challenging. It's too radical. It exposes our need and our helplessness. And exposes the claims in our lives of a God who will come and take soul charge. And call us to follow after him to take up our cross. And to go into the darkness of our own lives. Which is uncomfortable and scary and demands change, but that's the way of the cross, and to go into the darkness of the world and live lives of compassion and sacrifice and service, which is uncomfortable and scary, but that's the way of the cross. So when the world hears that, the world says no. But even as this prologue says, which we'll look at next week, when actually God works in power in our lives, we say, yes, Lord, me, Lord, please, Lord. And the light shines and illuminates and chases out our darkness. Verses 6 to 8, this paragraph, it, it, you could almost take out verses 6 to 8 and you could just carry on the thought from verse 5 to verse 9. But you can't. It's as if John is there in his little study saying, I've got to put John the Baptist in somewhere. This is where he'll go. And so the light would be announced that John there, verse 6, is John the Baptist. What is his role to testify concerning the coming light? John says, John the Apostle says, he wasn't the light, though some thought he was, but he was a witness to the light. 
John the Baptist is one of the most overlooked and underappreciated men in the entire Bible. We make so little of John, the New Testament makes so much of John. There are over 90 references to John the Baptist in the New Testament. That's staggering, isn't it? Why does the New Testament say so much about John? Because John had so much to say about the true light, about Jesus, about the incredible nature of his mission and his message. And just notice before we go on, verse 7, the scope, the universality of the message of Christ that John is heralding. So John comes as a witness about that light so that through him, Christ, all men might believe. I've said this many times before, every mission, every movement, every religion, every cult in the ancient world was confined to a tribe. A class of people. It scratched an itch of a, of a different sort of people with a different kind of discontentment in life. Jesus Christ comes along and says, I am for everybody. Whoever you are, your creed, your race, your class, your status, your lack of status. And that's why the Christian faith ran like wildfire through the ancient world. Rome could only unite the ancient Mediterranean world by force and oppression. The Christian gospel began dramatically to to unite all sorts of people by speaking not of an earthly citizenship, but a heavenly one. And with its message came power, the power of the person of the Lord Jesus himself. John has to end verse 9 in that little paragraph that he was coming into the world, but John knows he has come. The light has come and it gives light to all who will trust in him. Outside of Jesus, of course, it's, it's only darkness. It's darkness in this world. And as Jesus spoke, as he did often of hell, he always spoke of darkness. And darkness always speaks in our dark moments of loneliness, unbearable sorrow, lostness and despair. And that's hell. The bitter regret for what could have been and the current eternal anguish over what can never be because we ignore the light. But to those of us who come to the light, that is that is a language of heaven, isn't it? Light. Because light speaks of purity and life and hope and love and joy. Nobody laughs in the dark. We laugh in the light with people we love, with those who love us. So Jesus comes to bring that light to all who will trust him. And heaven is that world of all who will trust him. John says, journey with me. Let's take this journey through my book. I want to show you this extraordinary God-man. I want you to listen to him. I want you to watch him closely. I want you to make up your mind. And I want you, it's the open secret of the book, to say with John, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Thank you, loving Father, for this book of such depth, such beauty, such utter trustworthiness. And we want to bow together before our God and Saviour and see in him the revelation of the mystery of ages long past. God become man and bringing light and life where there is only darkness. 
and death. We step by faith into the light of your truth and grace, Father, in your eternally begotten Son. We know that to do that is to be swept into fellowship with a triune God. And so we adore the Father's wisdom and might. And we worship the Son, who is love and compassion. And we honour the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who brings the life of God into our lives. Lord, send us out, we pray, as reverent people, as people who think and love and live carefully and deeply and wisely and hopefully. And help us this week to shine the light of Christ in the darkness, that others might see him and have life in his name. Amen.